several years ago, uh, I, when I was just married, I, this was when I was really young, um, this was, uh, you know, a good eight years ago, I was in my 20s, and uh, I remember visiting a church that uh, my wife and I were attending at the time, and just being newly married, uh, and I still, I was working at a, a coffee place, I was managing a coffee place, and still trying to figure out what God would have for me and my wife and, and have for me in life. And I remember uh, going up to an older man in the church we were attending. I mean, he was, I think, in his 50s. Uh, he was relatively old. And, uh, and, and I remember talking to him, and I, and I said, uh, maybe he was in his mid-50s, and I, I just started talking and, and uh, chit-chatting and, and said, what, you know, guys, we typically ask, what's your name? And the next question we ask is, what do you do, you know, for a living? And, uh, and he started telling me, and, and he, he told me that uh, what he really wanted to do in life was to teach. Uh, he wanted to, to teach young people in, in light of history and, and teach these, these things. And I thought he was a teacher. I said, Is, do you teach now? And he said, no, no, I work for uh, DWP. I said, wow, that's interesting. Uh, Department of Water Power, I, tell me about it. And he went on to say that... Uh, that he hated it. That he said he, uh, he got married, and because he had, he had these dreams, he had these goals when he was young, like we all do when we're young and idealistic, and we think life's going to be a certain way. And he said, well, I got married, so I needed to get a job, and so I got this job at DWP, and then I made too much money and we, to, to leave it, and we got a house, and we had kids. And, and so for the next... 30-some years, he's worked this job. And in some ways, he's worked a joyless existence. Um, He would go to work every day, uh, hoping and praying one day he'd be able to retire, and so then he could do something he really wanted to do. And I thought about that when I was in my early 20s, and I thought, that is tragic. That is that is the epitome of tragedy, if, if you ask me. A, a believer who every day of his life he was living for something else and he viewed his present job as something he just hoped he could get done with so that one, one day he could do, finally, what he wanted to do. Well, it got me thinking about the passage we're going to look at this morning. And it got me thinking about uh, the reality that is life. The fact that tomorrow morning... Tomorrow morning, we all have to get up and start or continue the life that we've been living. We continue down the path. We continue the grind. We continue the rat race or whatever you want to describe it as. And some of us look at that and and look at that as a very joyless time. In other words, why do we get up tomorrow morning? Why do we go to work? Why do we... uh, uh, participate in the, in the culture that way? Why do we do that? What motivates us to get up tomorrow? What, why is it that we go through this exercise of work day in and day out, day in and day out? 40 to 70 hours a week of work. Why do we do that? Why do we engage in that? And the problem with that, that question is, if you don't have a good answer for that question, you very quickly and easily could live a joyless Christian life, which really is actually an oxymoron. It doesn't really go together. So this morning, I want to answer the question a little bit. 
of why is it that we work? Why is it that we go about this, this whole thing of working every day, Monday through Friday, praise the Lord, in this country, it's only Monday through Friday. Some of us work more than that. But why do we do that? And, and I want to talk about, I want to frame this passage in Titus 2 that we're going to go to with this question, why do we work? Or what's the biblical precedent for work? And, and I just boiled it down to three things. Maybe there's more nuanced things, but three reasons. Three reasons why we work. Why do we get up tomorrow morning and get after it again? The first is this. The first and primary reason why we work is it's an act of worship. When you work, it is primarily an act of worship. And why do I say that? Because if you go back to the garden, if you go back to creation, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, which is before the fall, how God created this whole earth, and he created man and he created woman in a garden. And he, he created with them a perfect relationship with each other. They had a perfect marriage. They had a perfect relationship between them and God, between them and each other, and them and creation. And one thing that's true before the fall is, is God wanted his creation to work. He wanted them to subdue the earth. He wanted them to cultivate and work the land. He wanted them to to help the fruit trees. He wanted them to name the animals. He wanted them to set structure and set order in the garden. And so when he did that, what it meant was when Adam and Eve worked the garden, when they worked the garden, it was an act of worship. In other words, worship for Adam and Eve wasn't a service, it wasn't singing, it was simply living, and living out exactly what God wanted them to do. So worship, worship. And and what happened with worship in the garden is, is sin came about. And when sin came about, it messed everything up, because when God said, Adam and Eve, you have to leave the garden, to Adam he said, the ground will be against you now. You're going to work twice as hard for less yield out of the ground. Now, you're, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to till the ground. And that's why in our heart today, there's a tension. There's a tension. We know we need to work, and yet we don't always see it as worship. True? There's, there's something about doing a day's work where you get sweaty, and, and there's something about that that's good, that it feels good, and yet... How many of us really every day, for every hour of the day, go, man, I am so glad I get to work today? There's a tension there because of sin. But, but the reason we work is worship. Now, the second reason why we work biblically, and if I ask most men, <clears throat> men in this room, why is it that you work? Most men, manly men that you are, would give me this next reason. Most manly men would say the reason why I work uh, is to put food, me bring meat, home, okay? It is that we, we have this uh, innate desire to provide, to provide for our families. And I'll tell you, that's very biblical. In other words, uh, uh, there is a, a biblical precedent that, that we work to provide. In 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul says it this way. He said... Uh, when talking of, about caring for the widows in the church, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, 
He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In other words, the expectation is that we work, is that we work. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, Paul said, if a man or anyone is unwilling to work, he shouldn't either eat. And so, and so why do we work? We work to provide. That's how God has provided the means for us to provide for our families as we work. Now, there's tension there too. Why is that? Because who ultimately provides for your family? Who ultimately provides the funding, the material, the roof over your head, the food on your table? Who ultimately provides that for your family? God does. I love that question because usually when I do premarital counseling with young people who have no money, uh, I ask that question of them and their parents. And usually one of the precedents is, hey, you need to have a job, right? You need to get a job. You need to have enough money to get married. And then I ask the question, well, who ultimately provides? Well, God does. But, but you need this. I go, no, 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 no. Don't miss that. Matthew 6 says, God ultimately provides for your family. And yet he uses you to work to help make that happen. So that works together. So there's tension there, and yet we we fall back that God ultimately provides for us, and yet he's called us to work. And and I want to point out there, it says willing to work. I understand that right now some of us are having hard times finding jobs. We're willing to work, but there's no jobs available. Bible says you need to be willing to do that. So you're fulfilling a biblical precedent if you're willing. And then there's a third reason, a third reason. And this is where I believe Titus, uh, the book of Titus brings us today, is the third reason is a missional reason, a missional reason. Why is it that I every day get up, roll out of bed, hit my alarm clock, get my feet moving, take my shower, drive to work, work with the people that I do, face the challenges that I face, face the 2.30 crash from all the caffeine I had in the morning, drive home at night, drag myself home, grab a quick dinner, maybe see my kids, maybe have an activity at night, go to bed, and do it all the next morning. Why do I do that? Because you have a mission You have a mission to accomplish. You have a God-given mission to accomplish through your work. And it's interesting to me, in my economy, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But in God's economy, it made perfect sense that God called you to work with a majority of your life. Can Can you believe that? With a majority of your life, God called you to work, and yet he's also called you to the mission field, and he doesn't separate those two. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you to work so you can glorify me, and I'm going to place you in a place that you can live out the gospel existence as you do that. And sometimes we miss that part. Sometimes, through the grind of everything going on, we miss the parts, I believe, we miss the worship aspect, and we miss the mission aspect. We get the provision aspect but we miss these other two. So here's what we're going to talk about this morning. The proposition statement is this. A slave 
or any worker who has been transformed by the gospel should live so categorically different in his everyday life that his very existence proves and attracts others to the message of the gospel. That a worker will live so categorically different in his job that it not only proves the message of the gospel, but that that gospel message becomes attractive. Would you open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2? Maybe the world's longest introduction, okay, but now we'll get into the passage. Titus chapter 2, and just two verses this morning, uh, which is good. Joe Saunders reminded me that if it's only two verses, I might actually finish this morning, and I don't know if that's true. So look at Titus 2 verse 9. It says this, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why? What's the purpose of all that? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Paul's talking to slaves. He's talking to slaves. And, and in order to understand who he's talking to, we have to put slavery in Roman times in proper perspective. So there's three things we need to think through. The first is this. When you think of slavery, the first thing conjured up in my mind is slavery that happened here in the United States in the 1800s, and in, in, in even maybe beyond that. In other words, slavery in America, as, and it was a tragic thing. It was terrible what happened here in America. Slavery in Roman times was, was similar because of the loss of freedom, but it was, it was dramatically different. So, so in some ways, I want to describe to you slavery uh, as it happened in Roman times because it's different than the picture I usually have. The second thing is this, that the Bible doesn't clearly condemn slavery. Now, it doesn't promote slavery, but, but you're left with, in the Bible, it doesn't make a statement strong one way or the other, necessarily. Although, in Galatians three twenty seven and 28, it talks about in the church, right? In the church, there are no longer, we no longer view people through the lens of Greek and Jew, man and woman, slave or free. In other words, in the church, we view everyone through the lens of, you're a child of God. I'm a child of God. Thusly, we are united in the same way. Also, you have the book of Philemon. In the book of Philemon, Paul asks a former slave owner who had a runaway slave to welcome back this slave as more than a slave, but actually as a brother. In other words, what the Bible does is this. The common ground found by everyone in the gospel and practice in the churches contains the seed that would finally abolish the institution of slavery. Instead of overtly attacking this institution that was widespread and protected by civil authority, the gospel would slowly destroy slavery by its power to change individual lives and attributes or attitudes. 
In other words, the Bible doesn't condemn slavery, but it does talk to slaves and their attitude. It talks to masters and their attitude. And in the gospel, since there's commonality, that structure would normally, or that structure inevitably would break down and that we would start to see each other the same. So the Bible doesn't come against slavery, but it also says the gospel at its, at its core is against slavery. And the third thing we have to understand about slaves, a common slave in Roman times, in the, in the island of Crete, would probably be pretty well educated. A slave would be a part of a master's uh, a group of workers, and the master was one who probably had a trade, owned a business, owned some sort of industry that he would train these slaves in. These slaves are probably casualties of war or, or prisoners of war that were taken in that way, and they perpetuated that way. Slaves could be educated. Slaves could earn money. And in some ways, the readings that I did, it said slaves had certain advantages to a common worker who was a free man because slaves had room, slaves had board, they had a place to live, they had something to eat, and they could make a little money. But the similarity between, uh, or, or the, the downfall of a slave, and a slave could actually buy his freedom at some time, or he actually could be set free. But here's what I can't comprehend about being a slave. And on the scale, you had some masters who were terrible masters. You had some that were really good. Okay, that's probably the truth too. But here's what I can't comprehend. Is a slave had no freedom to move out of his slavehood. Okay, a slave had no freedom out of what, what he was given to do. Now, he had some flexibility within the parameters, but he couldn't decide tomorrow, I'm not going to be a slave. He also was then bound by what the master wanted him to do. In other words, a slave didn't have weekends off. A slave couldn't put in for time off and say, I'm going to take Thanksgiving week off. Thank you very much. I'm going to take a little time for me. A slave couldn't do that. That's incomprehensible to our thinking. True? In other words, if we don't like a job, if we don't like a place we're living, we have the freedom to leave at any time. These slaves didn't. And I want, us, I want that to sink in because by comparison, we're going to compare slavery to the workforce of today, but by comparison, there is no comparison because they knew none of the freedom that we have. And so the call that Paul gives the slave is, is, is large, is large. And I would say without the gospel, it would be impossible. So that's, that's the frame of, of what we want to talk about slavery. Now, if you look at Titus 2, verse 9, Titus 2, verse 9, it, it, there's no uh, uh, verb there, but the verb is picked up from verse 6. Verse 6 says, likewise, urge the younger man. That word urge is picked up into verse 9. And so the first thing is, is Paul's going to talk about the submissive nature of a godly worker. Okay, the submissive nature of a godly worker. Now, I'm going to compare slavery to, to any kind of work that we do. And I understand that some of us have harder jobs than others. Some of us don't work or we are workers at home. No matter, what, no matter what you do during your day, this is what Paul is talking about. So the first thing is the submissive nature of a godly worker. And Paul says it this way, Slaves, I urge slaves are to be submissive 
to their own masters in everything. All right, Paul said the S word, okay? There's certain words that conjure up a, a reaction to us or, or in our hearts. Submission is one of those words that conjures up certain attitudes or certain emotions in our life. So let's talk real quickly about what submission, what biblical submission is not, and what biblical submission is. Because this is the general call that he gives to every worker or every slave. The first thing is this. What submission is not? It is not mindless obedience out of duty alone. It is not just mindless obedience out of duty alone. That's not what submission is. Some people think, great, you want me to submit? I, 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 guess, I'm, I guess I lose all identity, I guess I lose all self-worth, and I guess I just have to do sheerly out of duty whatever you ask me to do. Well, if that was the case, that would be lame. But that's not what submission is. Second thing, it is not. Submission, it is not dependent on the action of the one we are submitting to. It is not dependent on the, on the, what did I just say, on the action of the one we're submitting to. In other words, when we submit, we don't just submit to those who are nice, those who are kind-hearted, or those who are understanding. Submission transcends all of that. In other words, submission is a general call no matter whom we're submitting to. And the third thing is it is, an admi- it is not an admission of inferiority. It is not an admission of inferiority. It doesn't have anything to do with one being inferior or more-ferior. I don't know if the other one is, okay? It's, it's, not, it's not inferiority. You're not saying that one is lesser than the other. It has nothing to do with that. What submission is, especially in this context, is it is a voluntary subjection. It is, the, this Greek word is in the middle voice. It means it's something you choose to do yourself. This, uh, it's not something forced upon you, and that's why this kind of submission is distinctly Christian. Since it has to do with our attitude in subjection more than the act itself. It's not just about obedience, it's about why I obey. It's about willingly placing myself under. This is true freedom and power. Think about that. True freedom and power isn't forcing somebody to submit. True freedom and power, true expression of the gospel, is when I say, I choose to give up my rights. I choose to place myself under your leadership. I choose to willingly place myself under your authority. And here Paul gives no out clause he says, you submit to your masters in everything, in everything, whether you have the worst master in the world or the best. One of the, one of the books that I read says this, in the Greek world, this world, hupotosomai, does not mean so much to obey, though this may result from self-subordination or to do the will of someone, but rather to surrender or lose one's own rights or will. Submission is a choice. It's a choice. The second thing is submission 
it recognizes submission happens when there is disagreement as well as agreement. Do you know what we call when you agree and you go along with somebody wholeheartedly? Do you know what we call that? It's called agreeing. In other words, the statement isn't, hey, agree with one another. And if you agree, have a good attitude. If you agree, go along with them. No, submission happens by nature when you disagree. Submission takes effect. Submission is a choice that we make. Submission is a a volitional, willful decision that goes above and beyond my emotion. Submission happens when I disagree with somebody in authority over me. True? When, and that's the tough part, right? Submission, that's why submission is no easy task. Is when somebody over me who, who may not be as good as I am at that task or may not be qualified makes a decision and I go, no way. No way. Fine. I'll do it your way. Fine. That's not submission. Submission happens when there's disagreement. That's why submission is distinctly Christian. And the last thing is it is a recognition of the order within a certain context or relationship. In other words, the Bible talks a lot about submission. Let's, let's talk about some of those things. Submission in the home. Where does submission in the home take place? Husband to wife, parent to kid, parent to child. How about the church? Church happens where it says submit to the elders placed over you. And then Ephesians 5.21 says, submit yourselves to whom? One another. Isn't that amazing? We submit ourselves to one another in the church. How about in the world? Who do we submit to in the world? We're going to learn about this in a few verses in Titus chapter 3 as we submit ourselves to the rulers and authorities of this world. And then how about, how about the last one in James? It talks about we should submit ourselves to God. In other words, submission is all through our lives. All of us are in a place of submission. And, and where do we take our cue in submission? And here's how we know it's not a lesser or an inferiority thing. Where do we take our main cue in submission? Who was willing to submit to the will of his father? Who was willing to submit to the will of his Father to the point of death on a cross? was Jesus Christ. He was willing to go to the point of death to submit to his Father. And that didn't at all mean he was inferior. It just meant he was obedient and submissive. So that's the first thing. The general call that Paul gives to slaves is submit. Then he gives the countercultural nature of a godly worker. The countercultural nature of a godly worker, and Paul gives four things. And you understand, in the Cretan culture, the Cretan culture, we've already learned about it, Paul referenced a, a Greek himself, and he says that Cretans, these people, these, Greek, these Romans, were always liars, they were evil beasts, and they were lazy gluttons. In other words, they wanted what they wanted, primarily, they were, were there to, they would, were willing to lie to get it, and they were all about taking the path of least resistance to get there. In other words, this culture bred selfish, indulgent, and I'd rather have you do it than me do it, but I want the benefit of it. 
And you can see that that trickles down into all areas of life. So if masters were that way, you could imagine the life of a slave who would see what he could get away with being a slave. He could see what he could get for himself. He could steal from his master. He could, he could subvert his master. And that was common practice. It was common practice in this area. And so when Paul tells a slave to be different. And just imagine this, right? You're a slave in a, in a Cretan culture. And, and this whole time, you've been talking bad about your master. You've been stealing from him. You've been, you've been trying to head him off at every pass. You've been in it for yourself because he's in it for himself. And all of a sudden, Jesus Christ changes your life. And you come back and, and you, you engage again as a slave and you tell everyone around you, I'm different now. I'm different now because Jesus Christ has changed me. I've heard of this thing called the gospel and Jesus Christ took away my sins and I've been redeemed and I've been changed. And and people that worked with these slaves would go, right, all right, yeah, you want to steal something? What Paul was saying is what makes you distinctive as a slave, what makes you countercultural is not what you say about what happened, but actually dramatically living differently in the, in the same setting, in the same setting. Some, of, some people I've talked to say, ah, I was this way and now I'm saved and I don't want to go back into that context because they knew who I was before. And what Paul says is, nope, I want you to go back into the same context because who you were before. And I want you to live this way in four ways, he says. And, and it's a chiastic structure, which means he says, do this, don't do this, don't do this, but do this. Four things. Four things, real quickly. A cross-cultural, or a counter-cultural slave aims to please. The first thing Paul says is that this slave now aims to please. He is well-pleasing. He no longer just tries to get what he wants out of it. He no longer is out for himself. He actually seeks to please his master, not just by getting the task done, but saying, I want to do it in a pleasing manner. I actually want this master to succeed. And why would a, why would a slave do that now? Because a slave recognizes that he's truly serving one master. And as he serves this master, as he sees service to Christ as worthy, as worth it, then he's willing to serve any master, no matter how bad that master is. And so his primary purpose then is to please this guy. Please and see that this man succeeds. The second thing is he doesn't talk back anymore. He doesn't talk back. The word means to speak against, to contradict, to mouth off. (laughs) In other words, stop mouthing back to your master. Stop talking about him. Stop talking to him. Stop being contrary to anything your master says. And we have a problem with that today, right? Both, both in what we think we should be, our preferences should be heard, our opinions should be heard out, and, and we're willing to give our commentary on whatever our bosses or whatever our job or whatever our, our company is doing. And we don't always do it to their face, right? Sometimes we, we like to vent, which is another word for complain, about, about any work environment. 
about what's going on at work, about a coworker, about a boss, about a company. And in the name of venting, we're willing to complain about our boss, complain about what's going on. Do you know who we should really vent to? Do you know who we should really vent to? In the Psalms, who does David vent to? He vents this way so that he doesn't vent this way. And he, and, he, and he vents this way, and he goes, God, this is terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible. And then by the end of most psalms, he goes, still terrible, although now I can rejoice. Still terrible, and yet, yet I have perspective now. See, a, a, a countercultural slave, a countercultural worker, leaves most of his preferences and opinions to himself. Does this mean that you can't have an opinion? Does this mean you can't offer a suggestion? Does that mean you can't say things should be done a little differently? No, you could have an opinion, but, but most times you need to keep that opinion to yourself. And most times if you make a suggestion, you have to check your heart, make sure you're doing it for the right reason, and when that suggestion is not taken, you're okay with it. That's the problem. It's when we give our opinion and it's not taken, we complain. Third thing, he doesn't steal anymore. This word means to steal by embezzlement. You can understand how that happened with a house slave or a, or a slave that's uh, in charge of his master's affairs could just skim off the top a little bit. And if he could steal and get some for himself and the master didn't know about it, it's fair game. It's good. Culturally, that was pretty accepted. In certain cultures today, if you travel worldwide, if you travel internationally, that's how some cultures still work today. You leave your camera unattended, some cultures will say, you must not want it. I'll take it. If you didn't want it that bad, I'll take it. And, and this culture was like that. And Paul says, that's why you can't steal anymore. Even if you could do it and get away with it, you can't steal your master's time or his, or his material or anything like that. Stop doing it. And everyone around you may be doing it. Everyone around you may be getting away with it. They may be cheating on their time card or, or, or stealing time from, from your boss. Everyone's doing it, but you're not going to do it. You're going to stand distinctly different from everyone else around you. And the last thing is he can be fully trusted or showing all good faith. This means that a slave was going to be loyal reliable, dependable. He was going to have a good work ethic. He was going to work hard. He was going to have integrity. That means he was going to go not just duty-filled, but go above and beyond the call of duty for his boss. He was going to represent his master, even if his master was terrible. Now, why was all that so important? Because of this next verse. This next verse. Why do we do that? So that, in verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In all of Titus, we've talked about relationships. We've talked about different positions. We've talked about eldership. We've talked about older believers. We've talked about younger believers. We've talked about the interplay between them. And what's true about all of these things are all of these, these positions, all of these relationships are hard. Is it hard to be an elder and, and have character that, that stands, stands alone and stands 
uh, pure. Is that hard? Yes. Is it hard to be an older woman and, and to still submit to your husband, even if your husband's not that great of a guy? Yes. Is it harder to be a younger person and figure out life and, and learn from the older? Yes. Is it hard not to have a category to fit in at all and feel like everyone else belongs except me? Yes. Is it hard to be a slave who day in and day out goes about his business in monotony and mundane and feel like, am I even accomplishing anything for the kingdom? Is that hard? And the resounding answer to all those is yes. And I would say not just hard, but impossible without the gospel. That's why throughout Titus, you see this emphasis on sound doctrine, sound faith, sound speech, sound teaching. And all that, it comes back to the gospel. In other words, the gospel means that you are radically changed from the inside out. The gospel means that you've, you've, your heart has now changed, and with the gospel, anything is possible. That means now you can submit to a, to a husband, you can submit to a master, you can play out relationships within the church, because the gospel calls us to do that. And so, and so this leads to the third thing, is the gospel motivation of a godly worker. The gospel motivation of a, of a godly worker. There's both the knowledge of true doctrine and the attractiveness of true doctrine. The knowledge of true doctrine, the attractiveness of true doctrine. The knowledge says this, I recognize what the gospel calls me to. I recognize that the gospel calls me to change, and then good works are produced out of me. The gospel says that I, that I now live for Christ alone, that I'm living for his glory out of his fear, and all of my life is now about glorifying God and magnifying Christ. That's what I know to be true. But the second thing, what, what he talks about is the attractiveness of true doctrine. And I love how Paul frames it. He says, he doesn't just say, live out, live out good doctrine. He says, wear it, adorn it. Wear it like, like new clothes. Wear it like a new suit. Wear it like the most snazzy, bedazzled, you know, whatever. New piece of clothing that you've ever received. See, doctrine, what we, what we talk about doctrine and teaching is not just for us to get it and put it away in our closet. Every once in a while, take it out, argue about it, divide over it, and then take it out on certain occasions and put it back in the closet for another time. No, doctrine, if it's real doctrine, if it's true teaching, if it's about the gospel by nature, has to be worn. It has to show itself. It has to play out. And if it's not, then it's not true doctrine. We like to, we like to talk about words. We like to divide over things. We like to to intellectually tell how smart we are about things. And all of those things are good, but if it doesn't change how we live, then it's not true doctrine. Why do we labor to teach equipping classes? Why do we labor to preach the way we preach? So that the truth will affect change in your life and in my life. And that doctrine lived out in a context where you see people 40 to 70, 80 hours in a week. Just think about that. 
Sometimes we, we think, man, God, give me a mission field. Give me a mission field that I can go to. Open up something, God. Open up something for me to be able to proclaim the gospel. And do you know that if a slave prayed that prayer, the answer to that prayer would be, slave, live out the gospel each and every day. Live out the gospel in whatever context you find yourself in. Yes, you're going to do that. If you're a slave, 96 hours a week, you're going to do that. Every day you're going to do that. And it seems to you in your economy that you're not accomplishing anything. But let me tell you, you're accomplishing everything I have for you. Because you're honoring me, you're bringing me glory, and you're magnifying Christ to those around you. Sometimes the mission field God has for us is right under our nose. And we don't recognize it. And in this, he's not even emphasizing. The the emphasis here is on verbal communication of the gospel, but the greater emphasis is just live it out. And you live it out and people see it and they can't help but see it because you're adorning it. You're adorning that God is your Savior. People will see you day in and day out. They're going to see you when you've woken up and had a hard day. They're going to see you when you're stressed. They can see you under pressure. They can see how you handle success. They can see how you handle failure. And in all those areas, you proclaim the gospel. And after a while, what First Peter says is they should see the way that you live and ask you for the reason, for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. So what's, what's the conclusion? The overarching principle is this, this morning. The overarching principle, whether you're a, a, a housewife taking care of your kids at home, whether you're working 40 to 70 to 80 hours a week, whether you're looking for work, whether you're retired, whether you want to get a job and you just can't. The principle is this, wherever you find yourself, wherever God has placed you, wherever, whatever circumstance God has placed you, tomorrow morning when you wake up, you know the purpose of why you exist. <laughs> you know that your life is about worship, that I go to work every day because I want to worship God in, in all areas of my life. I want to provide for my family, and I've, I've been given a mission field by God. That's why I exist. That's why I roll out of bed on a Monday morning. See, we like to dichotomize things. <laughs> we like to say, oh, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do spiritual things at church and, and at night, but then I, then I have my job, and I do different things there. In Scripture, there is no dichotomy. How we live in our jobs matters for the kingdom, and we must purpose to live that existence out differently. I pray, my prayer is this, that if the gospel has radically changed our lives, if the gospel is changing our lives, not only does it affect the relationships we have in here, that we live out like a family, that I love older men and older women, and and they love me because we, we play that out together. Not only do I play that out within this community, but now I have an opportunity to play it out differently when I leave here because of what the gospel's done. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, so much for this morning. And 
for sure. Um, we all struggle with this. I struggle with this. I struggle with my attitude. I struggle with <clears throat> my motivation every day to get up and go. And Lord, I pray that you would change our attitude, that we would have attitudes that reflect the gospel, attitudes that reflect what you've called us to, that we'd begin to purpose to live differently as a group of people. Thank you that we could live this life together. I thank you that you've given us the Spirit and your Word. And I pray that this congregation, this body of people, would be a light in the mission field that you've called them to. And I thank you that we have an opportunity to reach so many people because you spread these hundreds of people out throughout this valley every day. So I pray that we'd live differently, that we'd be renewed in our motivation. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you're dismissed.